Samuel 18, verse 3. But the people said, Thou shalt not go forth, speaking to David, who asserted that he would go with the captains in the army. Thou shalt not go forth. But the people said, Thou shalt not go forth, for if we flee away, they will not care for us. Neither if half of us die will they care for us, but thou art worth ten thousand of us. Therefore now it is better that thou be ready to succor us out of the city. And the king said unto them, What seemeth you best I will do. And the king stood by the gate side, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. So the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was in the forest of Ephraim. And the people of Israel were smitten there before the servants of David. And there was a great slaughter there that day of 20,000 men. For the battle was there spread over the face of all the country. And the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. I have to admit that the last few years, in fact, uh, roughly five years uh, since I experienced that uh, heart attack and have been on medications, um, to thin my blood and to keep cholesterol away. I don't really know if it's the medications that I've been on because I was never on medications the entirety of my life until then. I don't know if it's that or if it's old age, but I am admitting that I haven't been sleeping well for these last few years. And I'm sure some of us besides myself experience that. And um, I'm also sure that David was struggling here at Mahaniam, trying to get some rest and sleep. And I believe that, that he more than likely was struggling, not only to try to answer the question, uh, what is going to happen, but what has brought this about? Why is this happening? I think we have an excellent example, a very pointed example of his struggle uh, through the night, perhaps, as I suggest, in that 32nd Psalm, in Psalm <clears throat> 32, we see this tension, we see this um, conflict, whether it, whether it was him not being able to sleep and thinking about this and his head spinning with this and that and the next thing, or whether it was in some kind of a dream I think more often than not for myself that I'm laying there thinking about things and I don't sleep well. But at any rate, imagine the conflict in his mind, the conflict more importantly in his heart. He wrote this Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom Jehovah imputeth not iniquity and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture was changed as with the drought of summer. Selah. 
he wrote those words as he struggled. He said, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity did I not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto Jehovah, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. But he's ruminating, he's meditating, he's turning these things over again. <clears throat> How many times do you imagine that King David's sleep was disturbed by reminiscing over what he had done? How many times do you imagine that he might have been going over that terrible ascent up that staircase to the roof of his house to view Bathsheba and then all those sins that resulted from that folly when he should have been with his army. Surely he was most likely ruminating over these things. And now here he is. Now here he is facing civil war, mortal combat with his own son, his beloved son, Absalom. Surely many of these things were going through his mind. We know that when he writes this psalm that he has indeed confessed his sins. He's confessed his sins as he has in Psalm 51, that grand penitential psalm, 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. He's knowing his transgressions as they turn over and over in his mind. And we could say in his heart, I am the one who brought us to this. I am the one. And I have sinned against my God. My sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. He agrees with God about his sin and done that which is evil in thy sight that thou mayest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Here he acknowledges that he is the sinner and he has sinned against God. He has sinned against people, but he has sinned primarily and most importantly against his God. That God that made covenant with him that covenantal God that spoke through his prophet Nathan after David's sin. But that covenant that he gave to him that we find recorded in 2 Samuel 7, he was likely remembering that as well and meditating upon it, ruminating upon it, turning it over God's covenantal promise to chasten his people because David recognizes that God has forgiven his sin. Well, what's this then that's happening? It's not God's wrath. It's his chastening hand. Yes, it may involve wrath upon some people, but toward David, it's his chastening hand because a loving father chastens his son betimes. God's covenantal promise. He says, as many as I love, I reprove and chasten. He says in that covenantal promise, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. This was God's promise to David. 
And now David is seeing the fulfillment of that promise. And he recognizes his implication in this that's happening. This was God's promise to David in covenant. And I believe that David probably said, so let it be. Amen. Even so. Even so. We read in Jeremiah, in the second chapter, words that speak to this matter. When God says through the prophet Jeremiah in 2.19, he says, thine own wickedness shall correct thee. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee. And thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and a bitter that thou hast forsaken Jehovah thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord, Jehovah of hosts. I realize that this was written after David's time, but can you imagine such words coming before David, realizing that God is chastising him according to his sin. God knows how to chasten his people. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And what did Absalom do to his concubines? David had Uriah slain with the sword of Ammon. And the Lord took his child with Bathsheba away from him. David dishonored his father in heaven his sons, and in this case in particular Absalom, dishonors him. But we know that Amnon dishonored him as well. We see how God turns these things, turns the sins around upon his people. Be sure your sin will find you out in these most, can we say ironic, ways. God makes a point, doesn't he, when he brings things about this way. But as we move on, as we looked at last time, David is appointing, dividing his armies and appointing captains over them. But we see here in the portion that we read already in 18, we see how that David was volunteering himself to go forth with his armies. But the people, and we've been looking at God's providence among his people, haven't we? The people, now what constrained them? Perhaps what they said is the whole thing in a nutshell, that we don't want you killed because you're worth more than 10,000 of us. So we don't want you to go. But that may not have been the entirety of God's design in keeping David back. This providential restraint, the people would not let him go. And quite honestly, doesn't it surprise you a little when you realize and read that David is acquiescing to the people in this? God's providence. God's providence again. Preventing confrontation between Absalom and David. Why? Because Absalom is destined to death. We've read that about the council of Ahithophel being defeated, that it was because it was God's design. 
that Absalom died. And so he was preventing through his providence a confrontation between David and his son. Can you imagine David taking the life of Absalom? Can you imagine this, this king that, that, that told his people, that gave his captains a charge? Deal gently for my sake with the young man. And then just to make sure they understood, my son Absalom, even with Absalom, deal gently for my sake. God is dealing gently with David here. He's not going to allow that confrontation where David would be put in that position of slaying his own beloved son. The position that God put himself in, did he not? When he sent his beloved son to Golgotha. In God's providence, there is a preventive providence, is there not? When we come to a fork in the road, I'm not going with Yogi Berra this morning, but when we come to a fork in the road and we make a decision to take the left or the right fork, do we ever know what was on the left fork if we took the left one? Many times we're not going to know. If we're on the highway and we turn this way, and maybe it's by mistake, maybe we don't have a GPS or it let us down, and we go the wrong way and we're unhappy because we've gone 10 miles out of our way. But if we had taken the right fork, perhaps there was a tractor trailer that would have collided with us, the driver falling asleep. You understand what I'm saying? There are preventive providences in God's controlling all for his people and for his glory. Surely there is a preventive providence. This is what we saw. This is what we saw when we read earlier, probably maybe a couple years ago, we saw David on one side of a hill and King Saul, who was seeking his life on the other side of this mountain. It was a big hill, a mountain. And they were each on one, and they were going to come together. And what happened to prevent that? A messenger came to Saul. And said, the Philistines are breaking in upon our people at such and such a place. And Saul gathered his army and took off. He didn't even know that he had David almost in his grasp. David didn't know that God had used his providence in this to spare his life again. But that's how God works. And we, we don't know about these things. So many times, God has spared us, spared our lives perhaps, spared us from many things. And we don't even know it. We ought to give him praise and thanksgiving for the many times. In our ignorance, we don't know what it was, but we know who it was that spared us and is sparing us. We see in this the heart of the king. Deal gently. Deal gently with my son. Captains, Joab, Amishai, Itai, deal gently with my son. Give him a break. Go easy on him. David had a tender heart as a father. It proved to be too tender. And we could say God had to take over and bring Absalom down. Deal gently. Do we not 
Do we not pray to God for our sons, for our daughters, those that are outside of Christ even? Do we not pray over and again? Even though we prayed for 20 years and we don't see any movement, do we not continue praying that God would deal gently with our sons, that God would deal favorably with our daughters? Oh, Lord God, have mercy. Do we not cry out with David as it were, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son. Do we not give thanks to God for the privilege of prayer? Even though it's been for years and we don't see any results, we don't see any favorable results, nonetheless, God has not taken the burden off. And here we see David still has the burden on his heart for his son, Absalom. And so he says to the captains, deal gently for my sake with the young man. Surely, surely he had cried these same things to God. The burden continues to pray again and again. He could constrain us to stop praying. He did to Jeremiah a few times. In Jeremiah eleven fourteen and fourteen eleven, that's easy to remember. And in chapter seven, pray not for this people. Oh, Lord God, that I never hear those words. <laughs> David has this fatherly heart, the heart of a king, the fatherly concern for a son. And he's the one that wrote Psalm 103. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord, so Jehovah pities those that fear him. He's imitating his father in heaven. Yes, the psalm is saying that God treats us like his children, even as a father on earth pities his sons. But it's David who's imitating God in this, pitying his son, pitying his wayward son. Like as a father pitieth his children, so Jehovah pitieth those that fear him. He is imitating his Father in heaven. And I believe that God's design, at least one of his designs, of course, for fathers is that they would pity their sons and their daughters, that they would do so by training them up in the truth, training them up in the way that they ought to go, setting the gospel before them. We can't give them new hearts. We can't change their hearts but we can set Christ before them and pray God for a regenerating grace even into our old years. Like as a father pitieth his children and he would have fathers, he would have us to pray for our children and even those that by God's grace have been regenerated, we, continue, we can continue to pray for them for many things, for God's grace to continue and direct them. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that fathers feel for their children, especially when they are in pain. They would like to suffer in their stead. Their sighs and groans cut them to the quick. 
They're thus sensitive toward us is our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father is sensitive toward us. Did God the Son not take our pain and God's wrath upon himself for his children, for his people? Surely he did. We do not adore a God of stone. But the living God, who is tenderness itself, Spurgeon went on to say, he is at this very moment compassionating. I like that word, you don't read it today. But he is at this very moment compassionating us. Spurgeon says, for this word is in the present tense. His pity never fails to flow and we never cease to need it. We never cease to need that pity. It reminds me of that story I've told once or twice about D.L. Moody, the evangelist who, when he was asked what he would like to have written, inscribed on his gravestone, he said simply these words, and the beggar died. He knew he was a beggar before God's grace. Just put on my tombstone and the beggar died. We never cease to need God's pity. But he sent his only begotten son. And we see God the son behaving in this way toward, if I can put it this way, his children, Jerusalem. His kinsmen according to the flesh, the way Paul put it. He came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet he pitied them. And we see that represented so Starkly in Matthew 23, 37, when he looked down upon Jerusalem, knowing, knowing their end. And he cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that killeth the prophets. He cried out for them even knowing that the bulk of them were not going to turn back to God. He cried out for them. David cried out for his son. David could not say with Christ, as Christ said in the upper room, of those whom thou hast given me, I lost not one. David couldn't say that. But Christ could say of those thou hast given me, I have lost none for all those for whom I was hanged upon that cross, for whose sins I bled and died. I know that every one of them will be brought to thee, Father, through my blood. All those whose names were written on his hands would surely come to him. Because God has ordained that they would. All those who's, who he put in Christ from before the foundation of the world will, surely will come to him. And that's our hope and our prayer and our cry when we pray for our children and our other kinsmen. Our siblings and the many that are wandering off down the broad way. And we've cried unto them, turn back, turn back. And they won't listen to us. And they have Bibles in their homes, but they won't read them. But we can keep praying. And David keeps praying. And Christ prays and has prayed for his own. Uh, we already mentioned Paul 
praying for his kinsmen according to the flesh. He said in Romans 9, For I have great sorrow and increasing pain in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were anathema from Christ for my brethren's sake, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And here again, Paul could not say with Christ, of those to whom I have preached, none is lost. He couldn't say that either, but he could pray. He could pray. And we know from his other epistles that he did continue praying, praying for the lost, praying that the Lord would send men out to preach the gospel, that he would raise up elders in every city, and so on. Only the Savior of the world could say, of those whom thou hast given me, I have lost none, not one. Our names were written on his hands. If you can't think of anything else to pray about, and I'm sure that you can, but I'll help you. Think of all the thanksgiving and praise due unto God for sending his only begotten son into the world to save us, to reconcile us unto himself, to send his Holy Spirit to regenerate our hearts at the precisely appointed time to bring us back to himself through the blood of his son, his only son, his darling son, Jesus Christ. That's why we gather monthly around the table of the Lord to reflect on that preciousness, that gift, the gift of our champion, our Lord Jesus Christ, the gift of faith, the gift of repentance, the blessing of forgiveness and justification, sanctification. We come to the table with much to praise and thank God for and to remember our Savior, to remember him, to remember his love, even while we were sinners, he loved us so much that he died for us. God, the Father, loved us and loves us so much that he gave his only son, his only begotten son. And the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit loves us so much that he's willing to indwell these yet sinful tabernacles. Oh, the love of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We come to the table to profess our love for our Lord Jesus Christ and for the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And that's what we are about to do this morning. And I would just remind you that if you believe through the gift of faith that your name was and is written upon Christ's hands, if I can put it that way, then please come. Please join us at the table of the Lord. I've asked Yuri, and he's gone. Okay, Josh and Tim, please. <clears throat> and I'm gonna stay up here and keep my hands off of the elements. I don't want to communicate anything to you other than God's love and grace. Paul gives us direction regarding this ordinance in 1 Corinthians 
11. When he says, For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 